Okay, so Sugarbush in the 90s into the 2000s. Yep. And then you're not the only person who came to the conclusion, hey, I kind of like living here, but I want to do my own thing. And you ended up gravitating towards real estate. Yeah, and I... I kind of got into real estate by accident. Not going to be all snow. A wintry mix is forecast for the listening area. Ahoy! Alex Kaufman here. This is Wintry Mix number 60. This time around the bull wheel, we've got Doug Mosley, which I now know is pronounced like Johnny Mosley. He's a realtor in the Mad River Valley with a bunch of volunteer pursuits and a history up at Sugarbush. Reminder that the Wintry Mix voicemail line is 802-560-5003. You can always chime in there with your question or rant or whatever. I'll find a way to get it on the show. Also, the email is alex at wintrymixcast.com. Stay in touch and feel free to invite yourself onto the pod. In case you're new, you should know that the pod has been around since 2015. There's a deep archive to enjoy and that as of this fall, it's now locals and visitors to my home studio in Waterbury Center. That means Mad River Valley, Waterbury, Stowe folks, and anyone else who wants to come and hang out. Episode 55 and beyond is the new vibe. Stowe, snowboarding mom who hunts ghosts, Waterbury world record holder, mountain biking visitor from Portland who sleeps in his car, army vet and heli pilot from Bolton Valley, and most recently, wintry mix car talk. Everything before 55 you'll enjoy too, it just varies in topic and format, but still quite wintry and much of it was in partnership with VPR. Scroll the titles and you'll find some gems. And thanks to those hitting up Apple Podcasts to drop those five-star ratings and reviews. Holy crap, I owe 94 of you a beer. 100 coming soon. Stand by for the goods. Wintry Mix Episode 60 is brought to you by the Williston, Vermont-based Shredder Squad at Ski the East. As an alumni of the Wolfpack, I can attest to the avalanche of holiday shopping scores coming at you. Come on now. Christmas shopping sucks. Instead, visit SkiTheEast.net, load up your cart with hoodies, hats, drinkware, women's, men's, kids, stickers, flannels, sweaters, whatever, 100% designed from scratch by ski bums to help you keep the shred alive ski the east.net some houses let's buy some real estate doug mosel in the studio how are you i am well um did i pronounce it right it's doug it's doug mosley but that you know mosley it's pretty close and i i've heard uh, it's, it's not even the worst thing i've been called today so <laughs> uh so i found you you found me it was a random 
I think Instagram notifications somewhere. Uh, but I've been wanting to have somebody from the real estate sector on the pod um, now that we've kind of localized it. And the Mad River Valley is an area that I guess I know a little bit less about from a real estate perspective because I don't constantly check it out on Trulia like I do Waterbury. Right. Sure. Sure. So you've been in the real estate business in that area since when? Uh, I got into real estate in 2005. So it's been 14 years, something like that. Two, three, four. Yeah, 2005 I got in. But in the Valley longer than that. Uh, I moved to the Valley in 1994 to be a ski bum. 24 20, years? Yeah, 24 years. Yeah, 24 years. Yeah, I think wow. That's right. Yeah, I graduated from college in 93 and I was kind of bumming around. My friends were all going back to graduate school. I didn't really have that kind of gig with my parents. So I came up here actually to go back to grad school and uh, establishing residency and found the ski business and kind of fell in love with it. What did you do that first season for work? I was a lifty. Okay. I, I, I still work at Sugarbush. I, I, you know, full disclosure, I, I've bounced in and out of about every job I could probably have at Sugarbush, but I started there as a lifty and uh, it was a great ski bum job. I got 120 some odd days of skiing in that year. Do they move you around a lot when you're a lifty or they kind of get you into one or two lifts all the time? Well, I was fortunate. I, uh, I started, um, training with, uh, uh, another lifty who's now the vice president of operations up there. And, uh, is that Hammond? Yeah, John Hammond and I were lifties together my first year. Oh, wow. He was a second-year lifty, but he became a patroller that year, and I stayed on as a lifty, but I was the Castle Rock lifty. Ooh, that's fun. So I got to meet all of the Castle Rock characters. John Egan was sort of like in, like right at the end of his heyday as a Warren Miller guy, and he was always there every day on snow days, and he'd show up with his little pack, and then there'd be 100 people chasing him, and they'd say, hey, is Egan up here? And, you know, sh- They'd head up the lift, and that was kind of a good gig. I spent the whole summer there. It was a good snow year, and uh, and it was I kind of learned how to ski for real there. You know, I'd always been sort of a kind of a hack, and uh, so it kind of taught me how to really ski. And that was the old Castle Rock chair. The one that's yeah. there now was replaced, I don't know, the year. It was my last year in management there, which was 2001. Okay. Uh, I was the lift manager there in 2001, the year we replaced that chairlift. I worked in the ski shop there. We were So we were employees of Sugarbush for some overlapping time, which I guess happens to a lot of people in this yeah, area. Yeah, you know, when I read your bio, I was like, there's got it. We have to have run into each other from time to time. Right? Yeah, so I was in, I was tuning skis in the old Gatehouse Lodge. Yeah. Probably 99 yeah. 1999. Chris Bertrand was my boss. Yeah. I remember Chris. He worked for ASC, ASC guy. Oh yeah. This was all ASC. He must've worked with Peter Koval. Must've been one of the, one of the, the tune guys. I think he was my direct boss. Yeah. And Bertrand was above him. Yeah. Kind of I, thing. We used to roll in with a, back then it wasn't PBR. It was, you know, a 24 of some sort of cheap beer every other weekend so we could get our skis tuned that was how we that was our that was our credit system i probably had more than one of those but yeah. i was probably only <laughs> 20 at the time but, right right you know close enough um okay so Sugarbush in the 90s into the 2000s yep and then you're not the only person who came to the conclusion hey i kind of like living here but i want to do my own thing and you ended up gravitating towards real estate 
Yeah, and I I kind of got into real estate by accident. I was always an outdoor guy. I always did things in the outdoor business. I guided canoe trips up north for years. Um, the ski business was a good one at the time to kind of bounce back and forth because I could work at the ski area during the winter and they didn't want people in the summer. They were trying to unload staff in the summer when they had no money to do anything. And so I'd take off and go guide canoe trips. And then, you know, what ended up happening was kind of like everything. I started getting a little tired of the ski business. It was the hours were crazy. And I don't get me wrong. I never felt like the ski business owed me anything. I loved it up there. I still do. Um, but I kind of started wearing down and started looking for something else and eventually got to real estate, you know, by chance more than anything else, because the job that I left Sugarbush for, um, didn't pan out and I was living here. I owned a house here and, uh, a buddy of mine was, was in real estate. And he said, well, Doug, before, and I, and I had realized a long time ago that I'm not a particularly good employee. I, uh, I'm not great at working for other people necessarily. And, uh, and in real estate, it's kind of your own gig. You can, you get out of it, what you put into it. You really do work for yourself. Even if you work for a bigger real estate office, you work for yourself and you somewhat can set your own hours. And meanwhile, I just had some kids and, uh, being able to set my own hours was kind of nice, but, uh, but I was always fascinated by the real estate business and, uh, I'm fortunate realtors in the Mad River Valley can make a living just, just kind of working in the Mad River Valley. Name of your current agency is Doug Mosley real estate. And it's the livemadriver.com is the URL. Yeah, that's correct. So let's talk about the local market. Yeah, sure. What's changing, what's staying the same short term last two years, biggest change that you've, that you've witnessed. The condo market has gone from dead to pretty much off the hook. You know, the condo market has been like this anchor after the crash. You know, when I say crash, I mean 2008, 2009, 2010, when median sale of residential stuff tanked, uh, condo market tanked, everything tanked. And gradually in 2011, 12, 13, you know, each major sector of the condo or the real estate market has really improved. Uh, the residential market's fine. The land market is still a little bit sluggish, but the condo market just hung out there dead for years. And then two years ago, the market just, it just caught. What do you attribute that to? You know, I think that the condo market where we are represents the, the bulk of the second home market. We, we do have a lot of residential homes that are second homes, but when you look at the sheer volume, the hundreds of condos that are up at Sugarbush, that really does represent the second, the, the majority of the second home buyers. And, you know, what happened was after, I think, years of the stock market being on the increase, that, that bull market that just kept going and kept going and kept going, everybody who has money invested in the stock market or in the equities in particular, in the bond market also, really started looking at it and saying, how much longer can this last? And when people pull out of, their, out of the stock market, when people pull their money out of the stock market, what they tend to do is run back to real estate. It's always been, until 2010 anyways, it had always been the really stable place to put your cash. And I think what happened is people started getting skittish about when 
is this market going to crash again? And they started pulling their money out of the equities and putting them into real estate. And condos are super easy to buy. You know, this is what they cost. There's lots of comps. It's generally really stable because, you know, if you buy real estate down in Boston, brownstone, 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 they all sell for kind of the same thing. And so it's very easy to know what your property is worth. Around here, Waterbury included, residential houses, every one of them is a little bit different. They don't just sell because this one sold for that, this one sold for that, this one will sell for that. The condo market is the closest thing we have to sort of the apartment market in the bigger city in Burlington, where you can really look at real estate in Burlington and know what it's worth kind of on a regression stamp. Like when you look at a sale, a sale, a sale, you know what the next three are, are that come on the market are going to sell for because the last four sold for that. If someone's spending... Just call it 200K on a condo. Mm-hmm. How much should they have in mind for association dues and taxes and you know everything that's kind of on top of you know owning that condo at a ski place, but everything that kind of gets attached to it? Yeah, it's not nothing. It's, uh, it's, it's, ne- it's never cheap to own a condo. It's convenient. And what you're paying for is that convenience. And so when you look at a $200,000 condo, um, the amount of actual monthly outlay, if you if you know if you put twenty percent down and you you're really outlaying once you've paid your association dues, once you've paid maintenance fees, everything like that, kind of the equivalent of buying a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar house. You know, you you're really going to pay between four and six thousand dollars a year in maintenance fees um, if you're up at the ski area, meaning up at Sugarbush. Most of those condos there are extra fees. There's road fees. There's water and sewer fees that are added on to it. And so it, it can get expensive, but you're paying for convenience. And people who want second homes, most of them don't want to deal with plowing driveways, don't want to deal with mowing lawns because they're not going to be here much during the summer. And condos are just, it's the easy button. Two-bedroom condo, 200000 plus fees. Has the public's adoption of Airbnb type things impacted actual transactions in, in your mind? I think it has, but I think positively. I'm not a. I'm not anti Airbnb. I know. I know some businesses are, um, but I. I think Airbnb is sort of the perfect example of the free market. You know, it's. It, it was a. It was an inefficiency, in the market. It was something that somebody came up with this idea, and people started running to it and. I can't tell you how many houses just in the last year I've sold to people who are planning on the Airbnb market. They're buying it because they know there's money to be made as long as they're willing to do the work. And that's the part I think that's a little bit unrecognized. I think many of the people who are running to the Airbnb market now are probably going to fall back a little bit. I think that it's a, a new thing right now. It's pretty exciting for a lot of people, but the people who are making money in Airbnb properties, most of them, they live here and they're doing the turnover between tenants themselves. They're basically absorbing some of the expense in in um, in the manner of time to them. And there's a burnout factor, I think, that we haven't seen yet. But for the most part, I think that it has it has it has had a positive impact impact on the real estate business because it's another reason to buy. It's another investment um, strategy that people are running with, and it's it's working for a lot of people. 
How many different realtors are there in the Mad River Valley, for, in, for instance? Boy, I would say that there are probably 20, 20 realtors, something like that. It's a, it's a busy market, um, which is how people like me got back in the ski business. When the market crashed and I, when the market tanked in 2009, I was a full-time realtor and my wife was a full-time stay-at-home mom for, to our two kids. And, you know, suddenly you went from earning a pretty decent living to nobody was buying anything. Well, that's the nature of being that business, right? You have peaks and valleys. I mean, yeah. when are your peaks and when are your valleys? Can you kind of predict them? I I used to think I could predict them, but I, I got to tell you, it's, you know, yes, you can predict them somewhat. The winters tend to be a little bit less busy with residential sales. The fall tends to be very busy with condo sales because people are getting ready for the ski season. Uh, the traditional spring around here isn't busy the way it is in the in Burlington or the way it is down country. Um, really, the real estate market for us jumps into overdrive kind of during the weeks leading up to 4th of July, mostly because everybody knows the 4th of July parade in, in Warren is kind of one of those unique things that you got to see. And, and it's kind of one of those few times during the summer when everybody who is involved in that valley during the winter that if they're going to come during the summer, that's when they come. And so the real estate agents all really try and get their properties ready to roll by the 4th of July, whenever the weekend before 4th of July is. And so that part of the market really kicks into drive in June and rolls right through the end of October. And then things get pretty quiet through Christmas and new years. And then things start to pick up a little bit, but, Again, most of the people who are here skiing are here to ski. And when they're shopping for real estate, it's usually because the skiing stinks. And when the skiing stinks, eventually they just stay home until the skiing's better again. And so... Do you spend most of your time dealing with buyers or sellers? Mostly buyers. Um, In fact, when I went out on my own, I worked for a bigger real estate office for 10 years. And when I went out on my own, I I gave some thought to just doing buyer brokerage entirely because I really do love working with buyers. They're fun. Your job is to find them what they're looking for. And in real estate, if you can't find somebody what they're looking for, it's a, it's a challenge. You know, your challenge is to find what it is they're looking for. Selling houses is a lot. I wouldn't say it's a lot harder, but um, there's a lot more factors. Homeowners just know what they want for a property. They aren't always going to agree with a broker and a broker's opinion of what their property's worth. And that the gap between what the broker's opinion is and what the homeowner wants, that that really identifies the biggest challenge in real estate. And one of the challenges of working for bigger real estate offices is that you have to take those listings, even if you don't agree with how, where they're priced. If you don't agree with the price, you, you kind of have a responsibility to the company to bring the listing in. Well, then you sit on it and you wait for the market to give the seller the feedback that they wouldn't take from you. Ideally, that's what would happen, but you only have a, a, a fairly limited period of time to market that property. The, the Vermont Real Estate Commission only allows you to have a one-year listing agreement. And so when you take an overpriced property that you know is overpriced, you, you know you start to lose time quickly. And at the end of that year, if you haven't sold it, the seller doesn't remember that you said, ah, I think this is a little overpriced. The seller remembers that you didn't sell it. And that's bad marketing. You know, If you can't sell a property in a year, that is there's a problem with that. And so... One of the things when I went out on my own, one of the things that I really decided that I was going to do differently was that I was going to just list properties for what they should sell for and not, you know, not 
bring in overpriced properties just to have the inventory. You just end up doing work that doesn't have much ROI for you and doesn't help the seller and right. waste of well, time. And the problem, of course, the dirty little secret in real estate is that everybody loves having big, the bigger the office, the more overpriced properties you like to have. Because if the house is worth 600000 you have it listed for 800000 you may never sell that that house, but you're going to bring in all kinds of $800,000 buyers and buyers run the market. You know, that's all there is to it. And so, you know, working in that type of atmosphere can be pretty frustrating. And so I went out on my own and, uh, and I've enjoyed it very much, but I do predominantly work with buyers. So you're dealing with folks who basically could just act as their own agent because buy- sellers need an agent more than buyers do. I guess if I had to pick one or the other, at least in my own mind, maybe not in reality. Right. So these are folks, maybe they're from away, so they can't get up here that often. And when Mm -hmm. they do come up here, they want to make sure that their time is used wisely to go see the three or four things that that you've got ready for them. Yeah. And that's generally what I try and do with buyers. When buyers reach out to me or when I have contact with a buyer, I identify what they're looking for. And, you know, usually within 12 hours, I can get them a list of, you know, I'll interview a buyer. And I take notes on it and I identify certain things that they're looking for and then produce them a list within a few hours of everything in their sort of geographic region that they're looking in. And then we start this process of, of winning away at them and try and get that list down to four or five properties. You can't see more than four or five properties in a day and really get much out of it. It starts to, they'll start to look the same and you get tired and you know, you get hungry and, and everybody just starts to fade. And so we try and make the first, the first day, three or four properties. It gives me a real sense of what they're looking for. I try and jump in the car with them and, and drive around with them so that we're actually having a conversation about real estate. By the end of that day, I can usually have a much better idea of what a buyer is looking for. And then at that point, I can really start to target what what it is in the marketplace that is going to work for them. And they can really identify whether this is the market they want to be in or whether they've chosen wrong. People come to you and say, hey, I haven't decided whether I want to be at Sugarbush or Stowe. And I, I'll stop them right there and say, you know what? If you don't know if you want to be in Sugarbush or in Stowe, you owe it to yourself to spend a weekend in both. Because if you love Stowe, you're going to hate Sugarbush. If you love Sugarbush, there's a pretty good chance you're not going to like Stowe. They're very different communities, very different feeling mountains. And, you know, they're not both going to appeal to the same people necessarily. I mean, the uh, 800-pound gorilla, has the Vale Resorts purchase of Stowe changed your day-to-day at all? I don't know. Or Well, the day-to-day is the wrong question. You know, the impression of buyers, the people coming through the door, the impression of the market, anything like that? Yeah, it's interesting. I I don't think that it's had a dramatic effect on our real estate market. Our real estate market in at Sugarbush has been very, very good for the last two or three years. And I think there's locally a little bit of anxiety about Vail. Um, I don't think anybody really knows. It, it's more ski area anxiety than anything else. I, I, I certainly think that Wynn Smith, who owns Sugarbush, um, has a reason to be concerned. Um, I've personally never felt like we were going to lose people to Stowe. I think people are either Stowe skiers or they're Sugarbush skiers. Um, if you own a home in the Valley, why would you go up to Stowe? Uh, but you know, I, I, I certainly think that 
if I was a ski area operator running an independent ski resort 25 minutes from a now, now it's a Vale property, I'd be a little bit nervous. And, you know, the, there's no way around it. Sugarbush is the driving force of the economy in the Mad River Valley. People can say all they want that they have an independent business that doesn't really rely upon the ski business, but Sugarbush is the lifeblood of the Mad River Valley right now. And I don't see that changing dramatically. And so as Sugarbush goes, we all go. And when there's a bad winter, we all feel the pinch for sure. And you can see it in the buyers, in everybody. A lot of new restaurants opening up in your area. Yeah, pretty exciting. I, I was just talking to somebody, I think... Aside from one restaurant on Route 17 that's closed, I think every restaurant is in business. All these restaurants in the Valley that have, you know, every year there's a couple that close, a couple that are open. This year it seems like pretty much all the restaurants are open. There's a couple of new ones that have opened. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, somebody's coming into the Big World place too, right? Right on the corner? Yeah, so there's a place called Sage opening there, and I think that's going to be Mediterranean food. And they are being opened by somebody who owns another restaurant and in the hideaway. Um, they bought the hideaway a few years ago. They've been running that very well and successfully, and they've been doing terrific. They're so pumped about the, um, the feel and the vibe in the Valley that they invested in another restaurant. They're opening this place and we got worthy burger too, just opened up which I, it's right across the street from my office and I haven't been. Oh man. I haven't been to eat there yet. You're I've, gonna, I, I lived in Royalton before here and we had the, the original down there and I, I, it's already on my list. There'll yeah. be a, there'll be a trip down just for Lawson's and Worthy Burger too. Yeah. Nice. Well, I walk in the door. I've been in there a million times cause I keep walking in and say, when are you guys opening? Ah, we're not sure yet, but uh, now they're open and I've been so busy. I just haven't had a chance to, to get in, but I'll be there soon. So when you have to fire a client, what are you firing them over? I prefer to never hire them. Yeah. Um, you see it coming? You know pretty quickly if you're not a fit. I have fired one client, but it was over more of an ethical thing than anything else. You know, you, you have to, if you're a buyer in the real estate market or a seller, you have to trust the person you're working with exclusively. And if you haven't developed that sense of trust within the first hour or two that you're together, um, it's not going to go well after that. You know, if you can't establish... Uh, uh, a sense of, with a new buyer in particular that you know exactly what it is that they're looking for and that you can help them find it. If you haven't established that pretty quickly, you're not going to have a long relationship with them. And usually they fire you. Um, and sometimes you don't know if you've been fired for a few years. <laughs> What's the most expensive thing on the market in the Valley right now? There's a house up at Sugarbush, um, up at Mount Ellen, uh, that's listed for two and a half million. As opposed to Stowe. I mean, I wonder what the most expensive is in Stowe. It's probably $15 million. Yeah, there's, there's some huge ones up in Stowe. But it's funny because, you know, cost, cost and value are two very different things. And this house up at, at Mount Ellen that's on the market for $2.6 or $2.5 million, it probably cost them $2.5 million to build that place. But the market doesn't support it. And the reason the market doesn't support it is because you have to have the type of buyers who are willing to pay whatever it takes to be there. And I don't know that Sugarbush has be, become that type of place yet. Um, it's not Telluride. You know, people in Telluride will drop $5 million on a pretty pretty ordinary cape in a great location, you know, just because it's there. 
we aren't Telluride. So if a listener, we'll start with the single family side. Mm-hmm. They're looking at houses in the 200 to 300 range because that's what you're doing if it's kind of your first house and you want to settle down and things like that. Um, three things they should make sure they keep in the back of their mind before they decide to buy that house. So the tough thing about the market in the Valley is that it is a second home market and the second home buyers drive the price. And so where the median home price in the matter of Valley or in Vermont is 225 in the Valley, it's 325. And so first thing they're going to have to remember is that if they want to be in the Valley, they're going to have to, they're going to be shopping out of their price range a little bit. Um, there isn't really a two hundred to three hundred thousand. There's not a two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollar market. At two seventy five, they can buy a house that maybe needs a little bit of work, won't have a garage, maybe doesn't have a basement. Um, you really don't get both of those things up until like three twenty five to three fifty. So that's the first thing is that the market is it's you're a hundred thousand dollars above the median for the rest of the state. Still cheaper than Burlington. That's true. Still cheaper than Burlington. And interestingly enough, I was showing houses to somebody in Burlington last week, a person who's leaving California to get away from wildfires, believe it or not. They're just, they're done with it. That's a new buyer persona. Yeah. Interesting. I, I asked him, I was like, so what in, on earth? We're looking at houses, we're driving up snowy roads and they seemed, they seemed undaunted by it. But uh, I asked him, I said, what on earth is driving you to move from California to Vermont? And she said, well, you've seen the news, haven't you? And I said, well, recently. And she's like, that's not recent. That's constant. You know. And she said, we haven't had a major fire in our area for about 40 years, but it is a tinderbox. She said, it's just not, it's just stressful. And you know, climate change is real. And you know, not that it's not affecting us here in Vermont, but I think they just want to be someplace where the climate is a little more normal. And we started looking up in Chittenden County and you know, up there, I don't know what the median is, but, you know, we were looking at, you know, houses there for, you know, half a million dollars and they're nice houses, but not, not exceptional, you know, just, just pretty ordinary houses in the 400 to $500,000 range. So it is a crazy market up there. How many sales are there in a month in the Valley? Like how much, what's the, the level of action? We do on average, in an average year, there's 70 to 80 um, residential sales in, and when I say the Valley, I mean, Waitsfield, Warren, Faston. I don't tend to include, I do include Duxbury and Waterbury when I'm searching for people. But when I talk about the Mad River Valley market, it's really Waitsfield, Warren, Faston that I'm, that I'm including in those searches. Moortown. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But, but really for the point of like, of searching for ski houses for people, it's Warren, Waitsfield and Faston. And, Generally, 75 to 85 sales per year. The bulk of those, three quarters of those, are going to sell between April and October. Uh, and then there's going to be a you know a smattering of them that close in November, December, January. And that keeps 20 real estate agencies afloat? So another 80 to 90 condos a year. And then probably 30 to 40 land sales yeah, okay. uh, last year. So yeah, you're right though. It's, I mean... I'm not selling the majority of properties for my, you know, I'm, I'm the only person in my office. So I'm, 
I'm obviously the top seller in my office, which is nice. <laughs> but, you know, you, you, there are certainly the lion's share of the sales are happening with a smaller smaller number of realtors. And then there's a lot of people who are just kind of in it as sort of a boutique job. They do a few. Yeah, they do a couple sales a year, a few sales a year. They have other jobs that they do. You know, real estate fits in pretty well with the gig economy. It's, you know, it's one of those things that you can do a lot of other things. I, I have a bunch of stuff that I do. I'm not, I do consider myself a full-time realtor, but I'm also a municipal assessor. I am actually the lister in the town of Faston, which is the town I live in. Um, and I do that a few hours a week. And I, I'm a volunteer ski patroller at Sugarbush. I don't get paid for that, but it's kind of the best gig on the planet, really. And that takes a day of my week, you know, so it's, it's uh, real estate does fit in really well with that type of economy. But um, if you want to do real estate really, really well, you have to commit to it full time. And of those 25 realtors that there are, I would say half of them are really full time realtors. Um, and those guys really do make the majority of the sales. Uh, for the first 10 years I was in real estate, it's all I did. And I was full time at it and I loved it. But um, when the market tanked in 2009, I was, like I said earlier, I was the, I was the sole breadwinner of my family. And there wasn't, I think we went from 80 sales in 2008 to about 12 sales in 2009, 2010, 12. Sa- I mean, that's, that's not enough to support even a couple of realtors. Yeah. And so I really almost got out of real estate. I went back to the ski business full time for a winter. I was still selling real estate, but you know, I, I just needed to get out of my office. I spent the entire summer with nothing going on. And, uh, and I got to tell you, I like the ski business. Um, and I almost went back to it, but real estate ticked up well enough in 2011 and 12 that I, I realized I was being crazy. I didn't want to go back. I left that business cause the hours were crazy and the pay was just okay. And, you know, I still had a family at home that needed me a little bit. So I, uh, I fell back into real estate pretty quickly. And, uh, now I just kind of, the ski area just, it's, it's kind of part of my part of my program i just do it when i can it's way easier to have fun skiing if you don't also work skiing that's true that's true although as a ski patroller it's a pretty fun pretty fun job but uh, the camaraderie is fun yeah the camaraderie is fun the you do get to ski a lot um but it's also very different being a, a volunteer and being one of the pros one of the one of the paid pros those guys really they work expectations are higher on them that's correct those guys work and uh and i have days where i work but i also get to pick my days and uh if the skiing stinks i can take a take a weekend off and you know do something else but how do folks find you so when when a customer buyer or seller is surveying the scene of the matter of valley real estate world mm-hmm. they're choosing you how and why so i do almost all of my businesses by referral and it wasn't intentionally done that way, but it's just kind of the way real estate works. Uh, you know, most people don't buy eight or 10 houses in their life. And so when they come around, when they've got a friend who's looking to buy or sell, they generally say, hey, who did you use as your realtor? And so you naturally fall into a pretty good referral cycle. And so I do advertise. I do I do a fair amount of marketing. I've been working a little bit, trying to get better about social media and stuff like that. But it, you know, for the most part, the majority of the buyers and sellers that come to me have been referred to me by a former client. What's the craziest shit you've ever seen in someone's house? 
oh, I see, I see crazy shit all the time. And what I've learned is that no matter how many times I have confirmed an appointment, I always knock on the door and I always open the door and say, hello, and make sure nobody's there because I've had people walk out of the shower. I've had people passed out in bed. I've had, I've had, I've been showing houses and had a, had the, my client's kid go upstairs and come down and say, there's some people in bed upstairs. You know, I mean, it's, People forget people. Maybe they don't forget. Maybe it's a part of their thing. <laughs> so you mentioned some of your other pursuits locally. Yeah. All the volunteer pursuits are what? I got to tell you, I love volunteering. And for the longest time, I, I kind of define myself more by what I volunteered for than um, by what I did for a living. I, I, I love my job, but um, I'm a volunteer fireman. Uh, I've been a volunteer fireman for 21 years. You gotten called out on some big ones? I mean... Yeah, we've had some big ones. We had, you know, we've had some good saves. We've had some some not so good saves. Um, we have we have seventy five to eighty calls a year, and uh, I would say more and more of those are becoming CO calls, false alarms, uh, things like that, which is good. You know, there's a there's been a pretty active attempt for to get you know, functioning smoke detectors and CO detectors in these houses, and actually the real estate laws now require there to be a verification that there's a functioning modern CO and smoke detector combination in all the houses and condos that you sell. And, and that really has done a, a good job of preventing a lot of pretty catastrophic fires. Of course, the mountainside fire a few years ago is one that stands out in a lot of people's mind. We lost 36 condominiums in one fire. Yeah, I remember we that had one. Five fire departments respond to that. Um, that was a worst case scenario. The one that we always trained and practiced for, which was what about President's Week when all the condos are full and all the parking spaces are taken up and all the snow banks are squeezed in and there's no room to get in there with a fire truck? Well, because if I recall, the further up you get, right, it's harder to get the water you need as you get further up the mountain and people are building up these switchback roads, right? Yeah. Am I wrong here? Well, the roads are tough. The water is always difficult. We have a really good network in Warren of... Uh, of hydrants that all actually come off of the domestic water system. And so there are hydrants everywhere and you open it up, you've got water, but you need to switch over to the snowmaking system pretty quickly because you'll drain the, you'll drain that, that domestic water system very quickly. And that's actually what happened in that mountainside fire was that we got up there, we tapped into the hydrant system. We had water on the fire pretty quickly, but it was, if you remember, it was really cold. It was, it was, it was like 20 below zero. And just at some point knowing that they're pushing water up, up from the Mad River Pond, which is the snowmaking system, they're pumping up to you and you have to switch over to those snowmaking hydrants. And just in switching over at 20 below zero, you don't have much time and things freeze up. And, and that was a tough one because, you know, we do, we did run out of water in that fire and it was because we were Try, you know, we had to keep water on this fire, but we also had to switch over before we ran out of municipal water. And that's what happened. We ran out of domestic water and now we had to switch over and the hoses were all full of water and the, you know, the, <laughs> the hoses froze. So before we let you go, if you could tell all the other real estate agents in Vermont or the Mad River Valley or anywhere to stop doing that. Uh, you, you what see, would that you, be? You ended on the on the thing that we probably should have started with. I could have gone on and on. I one of the things that just drives me crazy is overpricing properties. It is the worst disservice you can do to your clients. 
Is that always just driven by the seller or why else do they do it? No, I think that I think that there's two types of realtors. You can have a realtor who tells you what you want to hear and you can have a realtor who tells you what their opinion is. And don't interrupt a realtor who's giving you their opinion because the opinion is what you're paying them for. You haven't paid them yet. You're not going to pay them until they sell your house. But, you know, if a, if a realtor comes in and says, what do you want for your house? That is the wrong realtor for you because that guy is going to tell you what you want to hear. And if you say, I want 800000 he's going to say, let's list it for 800000 And for the reason we talked about before, and there's going to be plenty of $800,000 buyers. They may not buy that house, but they're still going to buy a property, and that realtor is going to make some money off of it, even though your house is sitting on the market. You can either be a house that sells, or you can be a house that sells other people's properties. And when you're overpriced, those properties get shown to people who are thinking about another property. And their realtor's saying, well, we've been looking at this $800,000 house that you love. Let's go look at a few other ones. And they're going to roll you into this $800,000 house that's really a $600,000 house, and they're going to get it. They're going to say, yeah, this is overpriced. You know, people, people who are buying properties, they are, buyers are very educated. There's so much technology out there that allows buyers to see what's sold, see what the market is. They know they're not idiots. And buyers know when a property is overpriced and you can as a seller want more for your property all you want but it's really not more than the market supports for it and when you overprice properties you mislead sellers you mislead buyers and you create an artificial length of time on market that affects the the trending in real estate all that stuff is linked together and when you overprice a property it just hurts the market it hurts the buyers and it hurts the sellers sellers get screwed and really it makes us all look like we don't know what we're doing you know that's what i would love it if people would just price the properties the way they're supposed to be priced they'd all sell quickly we'd all be happy we'd all have happy sellers we'd all have happy buyers we'd all be making more money none of us would have to explain to our clients why their properties aren't selling it they're, they're always not selling because they're overpriced it's always because they're overpriced well, I guess it boils down to whether the seller gives a damn or not. If the seller is patient and doesn't care and likes the idea of overpricing and sitting and waiting, I mean, if they're impatient, they'll drop it. You're right. I mean, thankfully, gravity has its way on that one. You're right. And and I do get it. I get you can make an argument that testing the market a little bit high is worthwhile because you can never raise the price once you... I get that. If you have time to do that. You know, the comps are all pretty clear. I mean, yes, there's things about properties that make them unique. No two houses are really the same. But for the most part, you can look at a market and you can look at a style of a house and you can find two or three pretty good comps and you can get within 25000 of a pretty reasonable and educated listing price. But if you're $75,000 above that, everybody knows it's overpriced, you know, so, but you're right. You can't, you can't, you know, sometimes there are, there are external, there are always other factors. You know, if you're, if you have a $500,000 house and everything that's on the market for 500,000 is inferior, there's always going to be an urge to try a little higher. And you start looking at all the houses that are competing at 600 and it's better than those. And so now you're stuck in the trap and the trap is to start competing with houses that are inferior but priced higher and the trap is that they haven't sold yet and so when you're pricing based on houses that haven't sold they aren't really giving you any any indication of what the market is it just gives you the indication of what the sellers want for those properties so the best thing you can do is look at the best three or four properties that have actually sold 
and compare it to those because those really are, that's market data. Whereas properties that are on the market, they aren't really anything. Has Zillow and Trulia made your job easier or harder? I think it's made my job easier. Um, people really have access. Those websites are great. Um, they're not, oh, the, the whole Zestimate, I don't get that. The whole, like, this is what your property should sell, should be listed for. I don't know. That's, you know, that's an algorithm. And I don't know that that works in real estate, but certainly having good real estate software that maps things well and shows, shows, shows people what the properties are and where they are. I, I think that's all really good. People call me all the time. They roll in while I'm showing them properties and they're like, well, what about this one? They'll bring up Trulia or Zillow and show me a property and they're really good websites. So I, I think anything that makes it easier for people to have an educated idea of the market is better for the business. Skiing this weekend? I will be skiing this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. We uh, Opening day today, I heard it was epic. Yeah, they opened all the natural, I guess, Steins and everything over. So Lixies and Moonshine maybe yeah, and whatnot. All the, and those are actually kind of my favorite trails. Yeah. I love that stuff. But uh, yeah, we'll, we're going to be up there at 8 o'clock. My kids' skis are all ready to go. And we'll be there. We'll be on the first, not the first chair, but we'll be in line when the, when the lifts open for sure. Close enough. Thanks, Doc. Yeah, thank you very much. And it's rant time. Once or twice per year, ski areas in my vicinity, or anywhere, find themselves in a pinch. They've got a problem on their hands that they'd like to be able to be straight with the locals about, but doing so would alert 90% more people than needed to the issue. Over the years, I've been able to swing in and basically launder their communications in a way that it reaches mostly just the natives, but not everyone. This typical cycle is underway at Stowe. It took some nudging, but eventually they took me up on it. That messaging is currently available via the Wintry Mix podcast Facebook page for those curious about Stowe's plans to address daily operations communications glitches. Give them a chance, y'all. If this is your resort in the future, embrace the nudge when it arrives. There's value in the guy that used to run communications for four mountains in three ownership groups but now just has a hobby podcast on the topic. End of rant. So, that was fun. Remember, you can call 802-560-5003 to leave a question or a rant or anything. Or hit me up via email at alex at wintrymixcast.com with any feedback or just to shoot the shit. In the meantime, I always appreciate those five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you leave one, I will owe you a beer when I see you in the wild. As of this recording, we had 94 and 100 will mean nothing, but will feel pretty good. Follow on social at wintrymixcast or better yet, share an episode tell a pal about the pod if they've been missing out. Goodbye. Hey Alex, I recently found your podcast and just can't put it down. 
Needless to say, I take to producing shit in the way that accidents look for a place to happen. The thought here is, would you please talk about some of the differences that one should take into consideration before coming to Vermont to ski or snowboard? Especially when the Southern Rockies is the only mountains you know. I learned to snowboard in 2014, and since then I've enjoyed fantastic powder days at Wolf Creek, riding the fabled corn of Purgatory, the majestic views and film snobs of Telluride, to the hypothermia-inducing winds of Santa Fe, New Mexico. I had an interesting experience there, which I'll skip, which reminds me of another time at Purgatory, Halfway up the mountain, I was riding one of those upside-down Mary Poppins umbrellas, you know, the two-seater with the pole in the middle. Had one of those elevated landing pads, and while I was ready to get off at the top, I was very much unaware that part of my jacket or backpack had fastened itself to the lift. And when I went to launch, I failed. Until I was nine feet in the air and gaining. Good times learning. As fast as I learned to ride more technical areas, I just took way too long to get off the damn lift, much to my chagrin. My mountain of choice would have to be Wolf Creek. I know it's small, but it's powdery. The Alberta lift is absolutely my favorite trip to the top. Keeps me in the trees all day long with plenty of hidden gems. I live for the stash. I started skiing last Thanksgiving uh, when my beloved Burton Antler board took a core shot that needed some immediate care. I went to ski in Rack in Pagosa, and one of their skillful techs patched it up over a couple days. Meanwhile, I rented some of their skis. Never tried it before, but he talked me through it, and by day one I was skiing backwards. This Christmas, I'm looking forward to sharing the gnar with the love of my life, and the stoke, needless to say, is getting all over everyone near me. Unfortunate for them. If my wife hadn't bagged me when she did, I'd probably be living in a van down by the Mad River. Thanks so much for doing Wintery Mix and Pod Sam. Oak Nuggins, this has gone on long enough. Alex Page. Hmm. Thanks for the submission. Thanks for listening. Sounds like you went deep into the archive. So, to the original question, though. Decide if you can handle below zero temps. If you can't, then come in March or April. Also, decide if you want to hit many resorts or just one to two. You could kind of go either way because things aren't that far from one another in this area. Be sure to hit some modern resorts and some throwback spots if you can. And if it's raining... Ski that day. It's never better the day after. Okay, good luck.